Good morning and welcome uh, to this session on Shanti Deva's ninth chapter. As usual, we will sit for a few minutes, settling our mind and body. Now visualize the merit field. We'll be saying the refuge and bodhicitta prayers, followed by the four immeasurables. So accordingly, visualize the merit field. With Buddha in the center, surrounded by his Sangha members from all the traditions, from the time of Buddha to the present. Reliable in terms of what they have gained in themselves. Think of fellow sentient beings surrounding us, all in human forms, yet undergoing their own respective predicaments, drawing from our own current situation of how life is so delicate, vulnerable, unpredictable at any given time, how it could be turned upside down. And that's not just now and here, but every time, every moment in samsara is like that. And most of the time, having been instigated by afflictions and karmas induced by them, the changes are not going to be for the better, rather for the worse. Imagine going through this, going like this forever, without any respite, lasting respite. Yet all of us share in the basic aspiration for happiness, freedom from suffering, And every move is supposed to be driven by that aspiration, which is rightful, justified, yet somehow 
the process gets sabotaged by our own ignorance, confusion, afflictions, negative habituations, and thus end up piling up more suffering upon oneself and others. And the prospect ahead is as bleak as before. Despite this, in the midst of all of this, we depend on each other for about everything. Thinking along these lines and bringing in your own thoughts generate a sense of affinity growing into empathy, into compassion, into bodhicitta, motivation to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings, led by this resolve that I must do something, can't wait for others to do it, given the opportunity that I have, I must rise to the occasion, not waste this opportunity, but to make the most of it, and the most of that, the most beneficial, effective way of serving sentient beings, as well as indirectly taking care of one's own interest, is to pursue the aim of full awakening so that one could, through one's own experience, lead sentient beings to a similar state of being, of complete freedom. All sufferings, all negativities, all oscillations. First we reflect back on the four immeasurables as a way of boosting the bodhicitta that is to follow as a way of laying a firm foundation and as a bolstering element in generating a strong, robust bodhicitta to follow. May all sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May they be free from suffering and its causes. May they never be separate from sorrowless place. To be able to do that, they have to practice equanimity by not giving in to anger, jealousy, greed, attachment towards sentient beings. Rather start out with that level plane attitude, fertile level plane attitude on which the seed of universal compassion, all pervading compassion, love, joy could be generated. 
to be able to succeed in making sentient beings realize these aspirations. Of course, they have to practice on their own, but we could facilitate that by being the unerring ultimate teacher, showing the path that one has learned from one's own experience. And to do that the fullest way is by becoming fully awakened oneself. May I attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. And to succeed in achieving, realizing this aim, may I never be separated from the Triple Gem and its direction and its protection. May this session, where we will deliberate on the ninth chapter of Shantideva's text, Masterpiece, Way of the Bodhisattvas, may this contribute to realizing this aim of Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Okay, so we were last time, we're still dealing with the the back and forth dialogue, or rather uh, argument between the realists in general and Prasangika Madhimika on the one hand and realists in general on the other hand. And uh, so Basically, since this chapter itself is on wisdom, understanding emptiness, as uh, understood by the Prasangika Madhamikas, as expounded by the Prasangika Madhamikas, the whole kind of a um, focus of this argument back and forth is on that uh, proposition of things lacking inherent existence, which to the of the realist is totally undigestible and something that they cannot stomach because they can't see existence aside from inherent existence. And more particularly, this is bolstered by the very fact that things seem to rely so uh, obstinately, so stubbornly on their causes and conditions. And based on that, they make this case that things must have an essence of their own, otherwise how could they be so, so what do you call, uh, so in a way fixed, fixed uh, to follow their necessary causes. 
rather than being kind of cheap relative, much more a cheap relative just about anything goes, which they think would be the case if things were to have no inherent existence. So they are taking it, taking or kind of showing their uh, struggle with it. Not so much struggle in the beginning, of course they are kind of as much confident in their position and challenging it, and eventually maybe they will give in uh, to the force of their reasoning and logic and kind of slightly, slowly uh, opening their insights into it. So they kind of attack it from so many different ways, beginning with saying that the emptiness that you are proposing is there is there is neither the need for that nor there is any uh, use of it. And towards that, they 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 would go through all means of kind of attacking it. By either by quoting the scriptures or using their available reasonings and whatnot. So in all of this, uh, from the beginning through, yeah, in all of this, uh, we've seen the prasangikas kind of uh, explaining their way out of their, out of the realists' uh, misgivings and misunderstandings. And uh, yeah, and uh, to a certain point, uh, they were saying, "How come you are proposing something that you claim to be the topmost uh, teaching, topmost theme of the Buddha's teaching, which holds the key for liberation and full awakening, in terms of being the exact antidote to the." Rude afflictions or the rude ignorance. How come? Because in the scriptures there are mention of some other uh, topics such as impermanence, etc., being extolled to the extent of suggesting that it is the definitive teaching. And there are even references to that. And how come? How come what you propose seems to go in contrast with that? So there are also the Prasangikamadamikas explain the explain the context in which that is being told, that is being taught, not by completely denying or refuting the presence of such a teaching, but kind of acknowledging it, at the same time patiently taking the time in contextualizing it and then putting it into perspective. So in that regard, uh, in that regard, they once again presented, presented, uh, who present five what they thought to be contradictions uh, in the way, uh, contradictions uh, that will befall the Prasangikamata makers. Uh, the first one is that, uh, that mitakwa, the impermanence that you are claiming to be one of the value teachings of the Buddha, uh, even that seemed to be, seemed to not hold the truth. Even that 
doesn't seem to hold the, hold the truth of, of being a valid teaching because there are people who see things in a mistaken way, see things permanent, see things as permanent, and 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 they present this against the person Gyakmadhyam because saying because saying saying that the what the person has present in terms of how things exist uh, by way of being mere renown renown to a consciousness uh, seem to also affirm that uh, sometimes uh, for for some people in some realities uh, things being permanent uh, would uh, would would be the truth would 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 hold the uh, say and so so along with this uh, we can see how the subtle uh, misunderstandings in terms of what Prasanga Madhamika is presenting those are being kind of uh, met here in the course of the debate and so that's something quite uh, telling to catch and kind of gather them together to then build a more robust, uh, comprehensive understanding of the Prasangika Madhimika's take on uh, what they claim to be the highest teaching of the Buddha. Anyway, so so in the course of doing that, they present five contradictions. The first is that even uh, things being impermanent, uh, an impermanent being an extolled teaching, uh, doesn't hold true in your case because uh, there are people who see things as permanent and believe in that and are so kind of taken in by them and 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 that should be sufficient enough in making things permanent because all you are saying things are is uh, things are uh, is that uh, things do not have any intrinsic identity of their own essence of their own rather it's just uh, by sheer uh, designation by sheer uh, appeal to a particular consciousness that 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 makes it what it is. So again, they are kind of uh, not catching the nuances of, of the Prasangikamadamika's presentation, and 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 those are quite telling occasions to kind of see where we could also bump into and mistake the understanding. So anyway, there were five such uh, uh, contradictions that they raised, and yeah, just namely the first one was even 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 impermanence could, could not be sustained as conventionally existent because of some who could see the same thing as permanent. The second one is that uh, in how the person Gangmatimika is presenting things to be existing, then it seems like they, it doesn't make any sense for accumulating, for making efforts in accumulating merits. Because for them, if things didn't exist uh, inherently, that's equal to saying things do not exist. And thus, uh, The whole project, or the whole teaching about accumulating merit and progressing along the path, would not be uh, viable. 
The second one is, the, the next one is Nyingsam Jova Miteba. Yeah, the, the fact about sentient beings taking rebirth, right? sentient beings taking rebirth would not be, would not be possible. Because you are, you are kind of uh, uh, liking them to an illusion, and illusory beings do not have a mind, or do not do not take rebirth, and, and the sentient beings are no different, and because of that, they could not also take rebirth, and then mitiba. Again, based on the example of the magical illusion, they're saying that the whole, uh, the whole structure of uh, virtue and non-virtue and their results uh, seem to kind of crumble down uh, in the way you're presenting things to be. Uh, because Milam, the beings that appear in, the, in, in dreams, etc., should be as real or not as the actual ones. And, and because of them being like illusion and having no intrinsic existence at all. And because of that, uh, the whole enterprise of virtue and non-virtue and the workings of the causality based on that uh, would, would uh, grumble. And there we saw the distinction being made. In all of this, one thing was very clear uh, how, how uh, unlike what the realist might have thought, unlike what the realist might have thought, uh, uh, the Prasangagamadimikas are not at all denying uh, the uh, cause and effect cause and effect uh, relationship. If at all, they are, uh, they are as firm in affirming it. And uh, so that's quite telling. That's very important to remember. Very often we come across uh, scriptures saying, uh, kind of, uh, what do you call, mm, pairing the two, interdependent and em- emptiness. When we so talk interdependence, it always talks about infallible dependent arising. So that could include the causal dependency also. That is also spoken as, as being in, as infallible, likewise, with other dependent arisings. And the dependent arisings are not supposed, not something to be compromised. Uh, they kind of stand their ground, they, they kind of hold their truth. Uh, and uh, while at the same time, the prasangikas can be very comfortable in presenting things having no intrinsic identity, no inherent existence at all. Uh, while while uh, f- completely uh, upholding the reality of the causal- causality, that too, in to the uh, to the extent of being infallible and uncompromisable. So that part should be quite uh, telling and quite thought-provoking to the, shocking in a way, uh, to the realists because of their, uh, their initial presumption that uh, 
that the whole the whole uh, structure of causality uh, must have, must be denied in this in this uh, in this presentation of things being uh, lack of inherent existence. What what they found is that the, the, the Prasangika Madhimikas are as affirming of the causality as as the realists are, except they're presenting it in the light of being lacking an inherent existence. So this is quite important to remember that the the that the dependent arising on the one hand and emptiness on the other hand have to kind of match squarely to each other and should uh, what you call not only reinforce uh, but accommodate the two totally together together in such a way that they cannot be is they cannot be what you call teased apart although we speak of them differently, almost like they are two different things. But in actuality, how they exist is they exist, they coexist, coextend, coexist, and can never ever be separated. So this dependent arising, be that of the causality, causality account, or from the account of the mirrorological uh, composition, or that of designation, uh, they kind of totally, fully accommodate uh, not just accommodate, they're kind of completely, completely merged with, completely, what you call, blended uh, with the fact of their being uh, uh, lacking inherent existence. It is by virtue of things lacking inherent existence at the very, very, very fundamental level that things are uh, what they are, be they causally related, be they meteorologically related, be they designationally related, they are all First and foremost, because of their lacking inherent existence, on the basis of that, one could pr one could present these viably and comfortably and uh, unmistakably. Otherwise, none of this will happen. Not only as a way of explaining it, but as a way of existing. For causes and effects to function the way they do, they have to be first and foremost lacking inherent existence. Otherwise, that that would completely completely come in the way of their functioning as cause and effect. Likewise with the case of mirrorological relationship for something to be part and whole unto each other, they have to be first and foremost lacking inherent existence of their own. Otherwise, such a relationship cannot be played out. So is the case with designation. So that part uh, may not be that clear to them right now, but kind of it is kind of beginning to sink in because of this initial shock that they are not against uh, causality. Because at this point, by dependent origination, they only speak in terms of causality, and thus and that part is not uh, being, uh, what you call, denied or compromised in any case. Okay, so in this way, uh, we come to stanza 13. Stanza 13 is where we left last time. And this is the fifth, fifth allegation that the realists are making as the Parasangika Madhimikas, saying in your system, in the way you are presenting things to exist, that is without any intrinsic, exist, intrinsic inherent existence, inherent quality at all, inherent characteristics at all, then the very system of Samsara and Nirvana uh, 
being separate and different uh, cannot be upheld. And this, uh, this, this uh, opposition or this objection is coming from their, from their uh, coming across, should I say, from their coming across statements like uh, that, like everything is naturally liberated. Everything is naturally liberated. Although I do not call it naturally liberated. Everything is liberated by way of its by way of its nature of lacking in an existence. Oh, everything is liberated from from what would have been a defilement in the form of nature if things were to exist inherently. Because things are not inherently existent, thank God or thank, thank, thank Buddha, they do not have this obstacle in their way of being, of being dynamic, lively, changeable, malleable, improvable, etc., etc., by the fact that that they do not have this, what would happen, a defilement in the nature if they had inherent existence. So, liberated or nirvana, or liberated from this, what would happen, a nyangen, a default, a fault, free from the fault of what would happen if things have existed inherently. And that kind of a fault, if, there, if it were to exist, would be a fold unto the nature of things. And that's Rangshin Yang whereas things are free from such a such a would have been a faulty nature. And they say that to be the case with everything. So usually we we translate this as everything is naturally liberated. Natural liberation, although it makes sense Except it 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 uh, it loses this connotation of liberation from what liberation from a nyangin, liberation from a sorrow or liberation from a fault, and this fault would amount to be a fault in the nature uh, of which the freedom we are speaking of, and that fault there would have been fault of the nature would be inherent existence. And things are free from inherent existence. Things are not inherently existing. And because of that, uh, they have this uh, space for improvement, changes, functionality, liveliness, all of those. Otherwise, everything would be frozen. If things were to have inherent existence, they would be just frozen unto themselves with no interaction, no changes, nothing like that. So they must have come across this statement in in association with the presentation of emptiness, and uh, where where it's claimed that everything, everything, everything abides in a let's let's call it for convenience. Everything abides in a natural liberation. Everything abides in a natural liberation. So let's read the, the text itself. Stanza 13. It says, Suppose you ask if ultimately someone is released in natural nirvana and conventionally is circling in samsara, then Buddha as well would be circling in samsara, and what use would there be for bodhisattva's conduct? 
So that's the objection. That's the, uh, yeah, that's the objection raised uh, to the Prasangika Madhimikas. Saying, I think in English translation it is better put in aligning ultimate and conventionally along the same space. In the English, in the Tibetan, it is a little twisted, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama suggests bringing Kunzup conventional forward, like it is reflected here in English. If ultimately someone is in Nirvana, someone is, or anything is in natural Nirvana, but conventionally is circling in samsara, then there will be a common locus between samsara and nirvana, a common locus, or there will be a common example of someone who is both in samsara and nirvana. Right? If that's the case, then even Buddhas would have to be circling in samsara sometime or the other, no, not sometime or the other, um, sooner or later. Even Buddhas would have to be circling in samsara sooner or later. And what use there be for Bodhisattva's conduct? So the reason for this is that this claim of things being naturally liberated or things being liberated uh, by from from their what would have been a, a fault in nature uh, problem. Since they are naturally liber liberated, since they are naturally liberated, or since they are in natural nirvana, and that should be actual nirvana, that's what they think. The, the realists think that, that natural nirvana should also be actual nirvana. And since samsara is by nature, uh, empty of inherent existence, that should also be abiding in natural nirvana. Yet at the same time, in conventional terms, uh, being in samsara being, is, is being driven by afflictions and actions induced by them, and thus continuing, kind of, kind of perpetuating the cycle of birth and death induced by causes and karma and, karma and afflictions. Thus, there could be something or someone who is conventionally circling in samsara under those influences of the karma and afflictions, yet at the same time be comfortably abiding in natural nirvana. How could these two come together? <laughs> and, and, they, and, and, and as a consequence for that, as a consequence for that, they are so confident that they are right in reading the Prasangika Madhimika's statements, and that they are kind of saying, this is such an obvious, uh, obvious contradiction in your position that you are claiming. And, and, and before waiting for the Prasangika Madhimika to answer, they rush to, to, to throw in the consequence of their position, saying that Buddhas as well would be circling in samsara. Although Buddhas have attained full awakening now, but uh, uh, sooner or later they would also be circling in samsara. So the reason for that is the reason for that is not so clear in the scriptures. Uh, but I think that uh, given someone being in the natural nirvana doesn't protect them from being in the samsara, 
then how could the nirvana that Buddha has attained be any different? Uh, be any different uh, in being liable to uh, kind of falling off sometime, and and then put the Buddhas back into samsara. So if that's the case, then what would be the use for bodhisattva conduct? What's the use for all those efforts in attaining full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings if that's something uh, not that stable and would eventually uh, come down? Yeah, so basically their misgiving is that natural nirvana should be actual nirvana. Natural nirvana should be an actual nirvana. And because everything is abiding in natural nirvana, they should be all abiding in uh, actual nirvana or some kind of actual nirvana. And that nirvana should be as good as in kind of relieving them from suffering. Yet at the same time, if conventionally they are suffering in samsara, then what good is such a nirvana? And also, uh, what good is the state of Buddhahood if uh, someone abiding in nirvana could as well be uh, plunged in samsara at the same time? Yeah, that 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 part is clear. Then the main explanation will be done in the in the I think in the next one maybe. Yeah. So let's let's look at the stanza fourteen. Even an illusion cannot be turned back unless the continuity of its causal conditions has ceased. Yet when the continuity of those conditions ceases, it does not arise even conventionally. So here I'm saying even the illusion. Even illusion means what is included in the mention of even here is not just samsara. Even illusion like that. Even illusion is no exception, not just samsara. And samsara cannot be turned back unless and until the continuity of its causes in the form of ignorance, afflictions, and karma has ceased. So they, they strictly follow the cause and effect. So even so, saying that someone being conventionally is in circling in samsara yet also abiding in the national nirvana is 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 not uh, is not a contradiction here and what you are thinking a national nirvana to be as uh, actual nirvana that's where the main mistake is uh, otherwise uh, someone who is uh, plunged in samsara cannot 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 uh, Abide in actual nirvana like that, without making any uh, any efforts in gaining it, because so long as the causes has ceased, nothing can be turned back, not not even illusion, let alone samsara. So someone could be circling, conventionally circling in samsara, uh, but they may be abiding in natural nirvana, but that's not an actual nirvana, for the actual nirvana. Uh, they have to make effort in attaining it, in turning the causes of the samsara uh, out. And only then uh, the seizing of samsara in the form of nirvana can be attained. Unless you do that, that cannot happen. And then he's saying, so for samsara to stop the the ignorance and other causes of samsara, ignorance and the afflictions, uh, 
given rise to by ignorance and the actions induced by them has to stop until that has stopped uh, the continuum of the samsara uh, cannot be uh, brought to end brought to a stop and uh, even conventionally also they cannot be stopped from uh, being in this continuum of unwanted burden that driven by afflictions and actions induced by them. And yet when the continuity of these conditions ceases, it does not arise even conventionally. Even conventionally is saying when the continuity of these conditions cease, when the, when the affliction and the ignorance and the ignorance uh, afflictions induced by it and the actions induced by the afflictions, if they stop, then samsara has no choice but to stop. Even conventionally also they could stop. Not only ultimately they are always abiding in natural nirvana, but even conventionally samsara cannot function as samsara uh, once the causes for them ceases. So it's not 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 a case of a kind of a, not a case of uh, something being so easily ultimately something and so easily conventionally something, but rather in both of these cases uh, there is a specific uh, kind of a specific kind of a structure or order to follow. In the case of uh, things being conventionally one way or the other, it is totally dependent on their causes and conditions. And it's dependent on whether those causes are ceased or not, that the appearance of that, even in conventional terms, uh, will depend. Whereas when we speak of things being ultimately uh, in national nirvana, that national nirvana, right? That national, the whole, the whole debate here, the whole argument here that you are bringing up, is is uh, based on your misunderstanding basically on your misunderstanding of, of, of the difference between national nirvana and actual nirvana. And it is on the basis of that that you are raising these uh, unfounded allegations against me, against Prasangya but it is your fault in not being able to tell the two apart. So by national nirvana, national nirvana is something that doesn't have to be striven for, that doesn't have to be made efforts for. Uh, it, it, is, it is just, just by nature of things uh, that, that uh, things lack inherent existence and they are functional the way they are, thus dependently related, and thus they lack inherent existence. That very nature of lacking inherent existence is their, is, 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 is their quality of being liberated from what would have been a fault in their nature if they existed inherently. So they are liberated, they are freed from that fault by its very nature. And thus, natural nirvana is something not you have to strive for. Whereas the other nirvana that we are speaking of, which is the not the nirvana, natural nirvana, but rather the lobunamda, lobunamda, the nirvana attained from 
purifying the adventitious uh, faults. The nirvana, the, the, the nirvana of freedom from adventitious faults, that's the actual nirvana. And that's something one cannot naturally have or naturally abide in, but rather uh, one has to uh, treat the path or practice the path. So there's a whole So, so there's this whole difference uh, between these two. One is naturally abiding there in everything and doesn't have to be uh, uh, have to be worked for. It's just their very nature. Whereas this nirvana, free from the adventitious faults, uh, is the freedom. Is the freedom from. The or is the seizing of the of, of the samsara, seizing of the samsara, the, sac, the, the, the cyclic existence, uh, the continuum of that cyclic existence, uh, uh, driven by afflictions and karma. When that stops, that is called that's called nirvana, free from the adventitious faults. So sometimes we speak of. As nirvana from this angle of freedom from the aggregates, freedom from the aggregates. So when the aggregates induced by the afflictions and the actions are stopped, put to an end once for all, that is nirvana. And in other terms, we speak of nirvana from the causal terms, from the causal point, when we say when afflictions and the actions induced by them are stopped or ceased, that's nirvana. It's just the same thing approaching from the two ends, one from the cause end and one from the resultant end. Otherwise, it's the same. Yeah, so I think that is clear. I hope so. Now let's move on to... Let's move on to the next uh, stanza 15. So from here, the refutation of the Chittamatrins in particular take place. The Chittamatrins, yeah, by the way, Chittamatrins, when they say mind only, everything is mind only. They say that everything is in the nature of mind, in the essence of mind. So the only part, the mind only part, uh, takes away external reality, external to the mind. So nothing is external to the mind, everything is internal to the mind, you could say. Internal in the sense of either mind itself or in the essence of mind, in the nature of mind. It's almost like when we see, when we look at things, it's almost like mind itself kind of extends, extends to the phenomena. And if the mind were to be, mind's projection were to be kind of a, it's almost like a projection, mind, mental projection. In Prasangika Madhyamika, when you say mental projection, it may not sit well. But in, pras- in the Chittamatra position, when you say projection, that seems to sit better. Although I don't know if there are other connotations in English when you use that. So projection in the as almost suggesting like it's extending out there. It could be withdrawn. When we do so, nothing will be left out there. So they speak of uh, individuals, private, uh, 
world, apart from our individual, respective individuals' private worlds, there is no extra world outside there. We speak of common things, common world, but that's only in general. When we do not go into the specifics, once we go into the specifics, that very concept of generality, which common, kind of crumbles down and it breaks down into individual worlds. Other than that, there will be nothing. So let's see. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a little difficult to give so much of a background, not that uh, I know. And the text itself is so crispy, so yeah, so compact. And let's look at the first one. Suppose, like the Chitramatrin mind only school, you then ask, why do they say like the Chitramatrin? This could be Chitramatrins themselves. Yeah, anyway, or it may be asking an individual person asking from Chitamatra's point of view. Suppose, like the Chitamatra school, you then ask, when even the deceptive awareness of it doesn't truly exist, why, by what is the illusion perceived? So this is an uh, objection to the Prasangika Madhimikas, based on their claim that things lack inherent existence and they are like illusion. Let me see, this is right. Get the chin, Ramsing. If things do not exist inherently, if things do not exist by their nature, then the consciousness that apprehends illusion, which is itself mistaken consciousness, nonetheless, is something that is apprehending illusion. Then even that consciousness, though mistaken and apprehending illusion, even that consciousness would not exist because they do not exist by their nature, because they do not exist inherently. So they're still sticking to this position that things must exist inherently. Otherwise, they would be equal to no existence. And they then attacking the Prasangika Madhamika, saying, in accordance to your position, you claim that the mistaken consciousness, uh, the mistaken consciousness uh, that apprehends illusion, that should not exist, because it does not, not, nothing exists inherently, nothing exists by its nature. If that consciousness doesn't exist, then what is the object that this consciousness perceives? The perceiver will not be there. Then what is what is an object in relation to that that it perceives? Even that would have to be denied. I mean, that would have to be denied. So that's kind of a consequence. Saying so you speak of things being illusion, illusory and illusion-like, and illusion being the object. Yet at the same time, you say so by way of saying things lack inherent existence and they are illusion-like, including the illusion themselves. In that respect, the apprehension, the, the mistaken consciousness that apprehends illusion, because very often 
the image, the the metaphor of illusion is used for showing some kind of a disparity between appearance and existence. And because of that, whatever consciousness kind of succumbs to it is considered mistaken. So it's, it's bringing the, both the illusion part and the mistaken consciousness part together in kind of making this uh, case more obvious, saying this mistaken consciousness that apprehends illusion uh, that you speak of so speak speak of so much in in conveying your message of things lacking in and existence, you have a problem in that such a consciousness would not exist because that consciousness doesn't exist inherently. If such a consciousness doesn't exist inherently, then what's what's the illusion that you're talking of of, of which of which which is it, which is the object of such a uh, such a consciousness. And because the illusion will not be perceived by any such consciousness, because such a consciousness in the first place doesn't exist, because it doesn't exist inherently, then the so much talked about illusion also doesn't exist. So they, 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 they present this what they think is a contradiction you know, to what the Prasangika Mahatmikas have been saying all along, saying that they have presented a contradiction in their face um, by turning their own uh, argument against the Prasangika Mahatmikas. They think that they succeeded in doing it uh, mm-hmm. by saying that you are kind of uh, dismantling everything mm, that you are presenting by this very, uh, by this very postulation that things lack inherent existence. So again, this is clear that, that for them, for things to exist, it must exist inherently. Otherwise, there's no other way of things existing. So this, this thing about existing but not inherently is very important to remember. Uh, we may have some some sense of they're being different, but we have to see how deep it goes. Does it just remain at the semantic level? And, uh, or does it really convey uh, some kind of a, uh, some kind of a strong, strong basis for making the distinction apart? And then one has to remember that all of this has to be situated on the, uh, on the, on the ground that, that conventional, that, that, that the, Conventional working of causality is as valid as always, no matter what. And yet, at the same time, on the basis of that, one has to make sense of things lacking in existence um, in a very uh, radical sense, kind of because such a claim would then imply things being merely projected, though dependently related. Causally related and causally, uh, kind of causally uh, responsible to each other, etc. Yet at the same time, all in the light of being merely designated. When we say all in the light of being lacking in existence, that's a little different. That sounds a little different than saying that all in the light of being merely designated. So merely designated, yet at the same time. 
totally, totally dependent on causes and conditions. Because here we have to see causes and conditions themselves are not some kind of a solid, uh, kind of a solid individual uh, substance, but cause itself, a particular cause itself is a conglomeration of so many, so many different things and within which the cause cannot be found. And so is the case with conditions, etc. And on top of that, there is this interaction, which is again as ethereal and as, uh, as uh, unsolid. So all of those have to be taken into consideration. Yeah, so let's see what the, uh, what the response is. So here, the first response is reflected in this last two lines of uh, stanza 15. Since according to you, if the illusion itself does not externally exist, then what is being perceived? It's kind of turning the table back to the prasangika, to the realist, to the chitramatras, by using their same reasoning. So, Prasangika, the, the, how this is turned back to them uh, is interesting to see, but it is quite little twisted. Uh, it, it, um, in accordance with the ex explanation, it says like this. Uh, for, this for the Chitramatras, for the Chitramatras, the object appears to be externally existing. The object appears, the object to a consciousness appears to be externally existing. Externally existing in the sense of when we see things for the present, for the chitta matras, it is like the object being there with the consciousness being here. Almost there is a difference in entity between the cause, between the object and the, uh, and the consciousness. That is, is itself enough for things to foresee, foreseeing things to be externally existing. And that to the chitta matras is mistaken. Because in reality, things are nothing but whatever seeing, whatever the consciousness is seeing it, that consciousness and the object is, they share the same entity, they share the same consciousness essence. They are not, they are not uh, sequential. They come into existence together and go out of existence together. So just seeing it to be there, and the consciousness being here, almost being unconnected, and let alone being of one entity, that's enough for seeing things to be externally existing. And for the Chitramatras, that is a mistake. Not for the Prasangika Madhamikas. Prasangika Madhamikas say things exist externally. Uh, and so do Vaibhashikas, although they, they say it in a little different, more coarse way. So the so the argument put back is like this: If uh, in in the in the Chitramatra system, the object uh, appears appears to be externally existing, and if it were to exist externally, then there would be external existence. In that case, things being illusion-like. In that case, things being illusion-like would not would not would not sustain, would not be upheld. 
would not would not be sustained and thus seeing illusion consciousness seeing illusion would not be there so it's saying that if things were to exist inherent seeing uh, things were to exist the way they appear to a consciousness if a thing appearing as externally existing where to ex- exist the way they exist then they should be externally existing if they are ex- externally existing then they are not illusion like if they are not illusion like the illusion will not be there if the illusion will not be there the consciousness apprehending illusion like will not be there now the present now the jitamatas will say oh no we do not claim that the object appearing as externally existing exist as they appear so this this fault will not be we, we will not this fault will not fall on us okay then the prasanga madhyamika present this other one if if you say the object appearing as externally existing appears like that but doesn't exist the way that they appear which is what jitramatins will accept then the prasangika madhyamikas are saying in that case the, you are already accepting a disparity between how things appear and how things exist that kind of a disparity is only possible for things that do not exist inherently if things were to exist inherently there should not be any such dichotomy any such disparity any such mismatch it would always be the same without depending on any causes and conditions nothing would have ever touched it or changed it so the fact that things may appear externally existing but not exist the way they do they appear that is very clear indication that that thing should not exist inherently if that doesn't exist inherently then citamatrins for citamatrins that thing should not exist at all because if they do not exist inherently all along you have been saying that's equal to things not existing so that means that means that means the object appearing as external existing appearing as external existing but not exist that way should not exist at all if that is the case then the object the object that appears as external existing but not existing that way and thereby uh, likened to an illusion will not be there so you hold the your whole discussion about illusion that you also use illusion as an example or not all of that enterprise all of that enterprise will crumble down because in that case such an object doesn't exist if such an object doesn't exist then what consciousness can it can it be perceived is is this clear <laughs> so it's a little twisted so it is a combination of prasangika madhyamika's perspective that of the 
Chitamata's perspective combined together in kind of attacking them. So to this, the Chitamatans are responding in the next stanza. So because the, the, the earlier uh, kind of argument or the earlier um, uh, the earlier argument kind of ends, ends with this allegation, ends with this consequence that, that, that the object of a consciousness doesn't exist as at all to a Chichitamatra. Right? There, there is no way the object could exist. The object of a consciousness could exist uh, in the Chitamatra because that, that whole project of object appearing one way and existing another and, and by that token being likened to illusion and all of this has crumbled down. So that means the object is uh, as good as not existing. And that, and that means even the consciousness apprehending them would not exist. So that's, that's kind of uh, presenting a question. Presenting a question like, how do, how do things exist in the Chitramatra system? They appear as inherent, they appear as externally existing, but you say that they do not exist that way. If that's, and, and that, that whole project has crumbled in the face of this, uh, this, this, uh, argument. And now, in your case, Objects such as form, sound, should not exist at all. So to that, they propose this, this, uh, this perspective, this new perspective of how things exist. By saying, stanza 16, right? Suppose you answer. In actuality, it exists as something else, the aspect of which is the very mind itself. So in a way, they took this uh, argument quite seriously and kind of felt the whole project, the whole claim of things exist, ex, 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 appearing as existing externally but not existing that way. Uh, they claimed that this being questioned and they, 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 they see the need of presenting a more refined uh, kind of a approach to this. And that they do in this, in this stanza. In actuality, they exist. It here is the object. Exists as something else, the aspect of which is the very mind itself. So they answered it by saying that when we say things do not exist externally, what we're saying is, we may have faced with this problem that you're presenting it, but what we're actually saying is uh, that, that equal to saying things do not exist externally, uh, it, is, it is the same thing as saying they exist 
as the aspect of consciousness. They exist as the aspect of consciousness. They exist as a dimension of consciousness. We use the term aspect for the Tibetan term number, but I don't know if it, if it always conveys the right meaning or not. So it's, it's, uh, it's like it exists as a dimension of the consciousness, as yeah, as a dimension of the consciousness, as nothing but the substance, as nothing but sharing the same substance, same substance as the consciousness itself. That's how they exist, and thus we claim that they do not exist externally. So let's see what. The, so this is kind of slowly leading to the the debate about apperception or the self apprehension. What do you call the meta meta awareness, something like that. So to to that the opposition to to that the. Opposition from the Prasangika is reflected in the next two lines of 16, stanza 16. Well, when mind itself is like an illusion, lacking external ex objects, then what is being seen? What is being seen by what? Let's see, it's so. Now here, when mind itself is like an illusion, So here, mind itself is likened to an illusion, or mind itself is mind itself is likened to have an object that is illusion-like, and instead it doesn't have external any reality external to it. Then it is almost like saying the mind has no object other than itself, because. The object that you spoke of as existing, not externally, is equivalent to saying that the object itself is a dimension of the consciousness, is an aspect of the consciousness sharing the same substance as the consciousness. And that is almost suggesting that there is no object for the consciousness other than itself. Because the object itself is the mind, sharing in the same substance, sharing in the same substance, and and uh, being of the dimension of the consciousness, it's almost like saying you you you're just speaking of just one thing, consciousness alone, uh, as opposed to an object to it, and, uh, and uh, as opposed to an object to it. In which case, the very concept of seeing and seer and the seen crumbles down. How could one thing could be said to be seen and the seen and the seer together? So this is kind of, uh, in a way, uh, there may be some misunderstanding, uh, but the, in both cases you can see how they kind of uh, push the boundary a little bit in making their case, and, and then in the course of which, uh, clarifications happen. But in a way it is true, saying consciousness and the object, they share in the same entity, same object, and so much so that the object is considered to be a mere mental projection or mental dimension. And in such case, to speak of seer and the seen would be almost out of place.
And then if that is the case, then the whole claim of things appearing as externally existing uh, might not also hold. So this, this will lead to, well, when mind itself is like an illusion, like an illusion, yeah, I think it's not exactly, it's mind is itself like an illusion. Mind is itself with an object, with, with, mind is ob itself with an object that is illusion like in having, in, in, in being seen as externally existing but not existing that way. Then it is almost like saying this mind itself it has no object. In which case, then what valid cognition is seeing what? So this will eventually lead to the Chitramatra's position on a perception, the self-cognition or the meta, might be meta-cognition, and they will make this more clearer, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe we will leave it there. <laughs>